This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. Hello, everyone. I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kyle Rizdahl. It's Tuesday, one day, one topic. Today, those big tech layoffs, because given everything happening in tech right now, from the layoffs to crypto and FTX and Twitter, oh my goodness, there are some <laughs> things happening, shall we say. Some vibes, some if vibes. you will, in the t- sector. Uh, So there have been more than 137,000 tech layoffs in that sector this year that we know about so far, hitting companies big and small. More cuts could potentially be coming. Lots of companies are definitely having a look at their uh, staff lists and making some hard choices. What we want to know right now is what all this might mean, not just for Silicon Valley and the other tech hubs in the country, but also for the broader U.S. economy. And here to make us smart about that is Rucha Van Kudre. She's senior economist with Lightcast, a labor markets analytics firm. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So first, can you help us understand what's behind all these tech layoffs? Why is all this happening right now? Yeah. So there's a few different reasons. Um, I think the largest one really has to do with what's happening in the economy overall. Um, So as we know, you know, inflation has been very high. And in an attempt to combat that, the Fed has been pushing up interest rates. And what that means is that people are now a lot less likely to be investing in new things and to be counting on future growth. So a lot of these companies originally, you know, didn't have necessarily the strongest business plans, um, but had Mm -hmm. promises of future growth, future profits, right? Um, And that was something that when the economy is strong and interest rates are low, people are willing to bet on. Um, But when we're entering a period now, people are a lot more hesitant. And so they want to see, you know, numbers, revenue, profits right now, as opposed to promise to them in five years. So if I'm uh, like a machinist in Des Moines or an office worker uh, in in Southern California or whatever, not in the tech industry, but I do read the headlines and I see this, should I be worried for me? So I don't think you should be worried yet. Um, I think yet, there's yet's, a couple of things. doing a lot of work there. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, that's fair. <laughs> We've seen nothing in the data that indicates you should be worried. Okay. I say yet because I don't know what the data will show two months from now. Um, But there's no indication right now that this is a problem in the larger labor market. There's not really even an indication this is a problem in the larger industry or in those particular group of occupations outside of these big firms. Hmm. Oh, say more about that. Why is it concentrated in these couple of particular firms that we're seeing in the headlines? There's a few different theories. Um, The first, and that I think most people accept, is that a lot of these firms grew very quickly during the pandemic. A lot of people changed their spending patterns. Um, So if you think about someone who, you know, used to commute in every day, now is at home, maybe they're buying a lot of furniture from Wayfair, right? Um, Or they're not taking public transportation as much. So maybe they're using Lyft more, sort of or Peloton's another typical example, right? These are like very specific spending patterns that shifted. 
Um, and now that things are going back to normal, those patterns have changed back to what they used to be as well, right? So a lot of companies, I think, were sort of banking on this sort of trajectory of spending to continue the way it had been, and it hasn't. So I think that's one main reason. Another big reason is that a lot of these companies in this growth kind of overhired, right? They hired a ton more people than they probably actually needed to do the jobs. And the assumption there was that, you know, they will continue growing. But now that things have slowed down, it doesn't necessarily make sense to have all of those extra people on the payroll. And another thing is that, you know, these companies could really compete for top talent, right? They tend mm -hmm. to pay a little bit more. Um, and so a lot of other smaller companies or, you know, things that maybe some people consider not in the tech industry, but still require a lot of tech workers, for example, banking or insurance, had a really hard time getting people like software developers into their offices, right? Because they, they basically couldn't afford it. Um, and so while this was happening, these companies were snapping up all of these people. Um, and what that means is that now, as things are scaling back, they have a lot more people than they probably actually need. Mm. And so in some ways, I think many people see this as more of a reshuffling back to an equilibrium. Um, as mm. opposed to, you know, something that we've never seen before. This is almost going back to the way things probably were before a lot of these patterns shifted with the pandemic. So so this isn't your job. It's, it's literally uh, uh, Kimberly's and, and my job. But when we see, say, Amazon announce we're going to lay off 10,000 people, that's a very big number, even in the context of a labor force of 165 million people. You know, 10,000 people is that's a lot of people who are losing their jobs. Are, is the media sort of overplaying the tech layoffs, I guess, is the question? So I think it depends on how you look at it, right? So on the one hand, yes, 10,000 people is a lot of people. And I think when you're thinking about, you know, those people individually, obviously, this is a very hard time for them. And so I think, you know, when we think about the economy at large, it's hard because, you know, the Fed is talking about they want unemployment to go back up to, mm -hmm. what, I think, 4.6 or 4.7 percent, mm -hmm. right? And that's going to be at least a million more people who don't have a job. And that is a very tough number to think about. But at the same time, as you said, 10,000 out of 165 million is actually a tiny fraction of our workforce. Um, and so while I never want to minimize anyone losing their job, um, mm -hmm. it's not reflective of the larger economy. Yeah. So then I guess that kind of eliminates next question was how <laughs> <laughs> I mean I was going to ask you how this compares to the last sort of bursting of the dot-com bubble but it sounds like it's not at all the same I think the circumstances are very different um so you know one thing that we have going on now um is this very tight labor market right so coming into this period we had a lot of labor shortages um the new data is about to be released tomorrow, um, but in the previous report that came out last month, there was still something like 10 million job openings around yeah, the economy, yeah. which is a very large number. Um, it's, you know, a little bit lower than we had earlier in the year, but still historically a huge number. Um, and so, you know, I think to some extent, these other firms that haven't overhired are still holding on to people and they're not letting them go, Right. Because I think, just you know, people know now, too, that if you get let go of people, it's going to be hard to get them back. So if what you're trying to do is fill openings you need, as opposed to, you know, having extra workforce, people are going to snap those other ones up. And I think, you know, there's different trends that were leading the, the last dot-com burst um, right now. I think there's definitely a bit of that. 
I think tech is actually an industry that tends to go through more of kind of a boom bust cycle than other industries, partially because it is so focused around innovation, right? And things changing and investing in new things. And so I think anytime the economy changes, um, we are going to see more movement there than we would see in other industries, right? Um, particularly where other industries, often a worker is much more tied directly to revenue. So if you think about a warehouse worker or a retail worker, their labor is directly affecting the amount of revenue that comes out, right? Um, if you think about some of these tech companies or something like, you know, an app or a website, it's hard to say, you know, exactly how each person affects the bottom line. Um, and so I think, you know, at least in these industries right now where we know that people are very heavily tied to revenue and there still are shortages, um, I think we're not going to see that same fall the way we've been seeing it within the tech workers. So step back here for a minute and and sure. put, put yourself in Jay Powell's shoes, uh, because <laughs> Jay Powell and the gang at the Federal Open Market Committee have been beaten up on this economy now for a year, right? And have raised interest rates really high, really fast, relatively speaking. And yet the labor market has basically said, meh, who cares what the Fed says? Why? Why is the labor market so resilient right now or so strong, I guess? Well, I think it's important to note that it has reacted a tiny bit, right? Yeah, Unemployment yeah. did go up yeah. a tiny bit last month. Um, and we're going to see the number this Friday, actually. So we'll know if it's inched yeah. up a little bit more. Um, but as I was saying, it's I think part of it is our companies are scared to lay off workers if they can't get them back. Hmm. And a lot of these smaller companies never filled those openings in the first place. So the idea of all of a sudden cutting back when you're already missing people, particularly in certain industries, is not appealing, right? Um, and yeah. so I think because of that, it's just a very different environment than we've been in before. Um, but it does seem like, you know, things are slowing down a little bit. Um, you know, those openings did come down a little bit. Um, unemployment's a little bit higher. Um, and so I think, you know, we are very, very slowly moving in the right direction. I think it's just hard because sort of the things that are driving yeah. this underlying economy is not something the Fed can control, right? So there's a lot of global factors as well. Um, you know, we have a lot of geopolitical stuff going on with Ukraine and supply side, things that have been hard for us to get actual supply chain things into the U.S. And all of that is going to affect our economy as well. And those aren't really things that can be easily changed right, right. now. Right. The other thing that really strikes me about some of these tech layoffs is that these companies are still very profitable. I mean, Twitter obviously is hemorrhaging money at the moment, so it's not <laughs> right. But that's, yeah, that's I, the outlier. But yes, if you're talking about some of these big tech firms like Google, like Amazon, these companies are still incredibly profitable. So it's not like they have to cut workers, but they still are. What does that tell us about sort of what the where the tech industry is right now? I think they're basically playing it safe a little bit. Um, so you're absolutely right that they are still very profitable. Um, but there's a certain level of profits that's expected, right, for them by the investors. Um, and I think right now, a lot of people are just looking forward and thinking if we're going to have a tough year coming up, when things are going to slow down, we want to get ahead of it. I think there could also be a little bit sort of at play of kind of like, well, one company started doing it. Now we can all do it. No one's going to be mad at us. Um, right. Like we're all doing it together. We're all in it. Um, and so I think there's maybe a little bit of that going on as well. Um, I don't 
Twitter, I'm leaving out of the conversation because I think there's just <laughs> so many different things going on right there that it's hard to attribute yeah. that specifically to the economy. Um, but I do think, you know, in many cases, there were some bets made on things that ended up not playing out, right? You think about some of the stuff we saw over at Meta um, in terms of, you know, trying to launch some of the crypto stuff. The whole crypto market, right, is is sort of a kind of in a very difficult mm-hmm. place right now. So if you think about all of these new technologies that people were betting on, and now investors are saying, let's be more measured, let's see where things are going. Even if you don't have to lay off people, it doesn't actually cost these companies all that much to do so, right? The other thing is, I think they know they pay better. So maybe in a year or two, they're going to hire people back. Like, I think they're used to these cycles a little bit. You said something there that I'm actually quite curious about regarding crypto. Has crypto just, and what's going on there, just spooked the whole tech industry? It's hard to say because we. it's hard to see data specifically on crypto, right? Um, things don't really <laughs> spread out that way. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's a little bit hard. That plus it's it's a fairly, you know, hidden industry in many ways, right? Like that's kind of the goal of it. Um, yeah. But I do think that there there are some similarities in, in terms of, you know, we know that when the dot-com uh, bubble happened with the housing crisis back in 2008, there just wasn't a lot of regulation, right? Um, mm. Around what companies could and couldn't do. And so I think in some ways we're seeing something very similar to that, where there wasn't much regulating going on, kind of because that's the purpose. Um, and when that happens, you know, questionable decisions get made. Um, people can be greedy sometimes, right? And so I think it's no. one of those things where, <laughs> right, I don't want to say anyone in specific, but I have heard that sometimes people are greedy um, and can make questionable decisions around money. And so I think, you know, with that complete lack of regulation, it's it's not super surprising we ended up here. Yeah. All right. Rucha Van Kudre, thank you so much. She's an economist with the labor firm Lightcast. Definitely made me smarter about this. I appreciate it. Thanks Thank for- you. So so the message I get is, yeah, it's a big deal in tech, but not a wider big deal, right? So when we were talking about this last week, it's like these workers are probably going to be able to find other yeah, jobs. For sure. They for sure. may not pay as well. Yeah. Uh it'll be it'll be very interesting to see if all of these tech workers who do get hired into other firms will maybe change the workplace culture to basically pressure more companies to adopt better remote work policies. Because if you think about all these companies who've been struggling to hire Mm -hmm. skilled workers, and now there's a bunch of folks on the market, but who've probably had pretty generous remote work policies, is that going to kind of force some companies in that direction when maybe they didn't want to go there? Right, 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 right. You know, look, the pandemic changes everything, right? The pandemic is changing everything. Truly, truly. All right. And we want to hear from you. Uh, Do you think, as the pandemic has changed everything, uh, how is this showing up in your life? Uh, Have you been laid off from a tech company recently? If so, I'm very sorry and good luck with the job hunt. Uh, But what does the labor market look like from your point of view in or out of the tech industry? We'd be curious to know what you think. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can also email us at makemesmart@marketplace.org. We will be right back.
All right, we are back. Time for the news fix. Kai, yours has had me on pins and needles. I was just talking well, to my friend about this this morning. Yeah, so so there has been talk the last couple of days after some talk about six weeks ago and then after some more talk about uh, four or five months ago in the summertime about a railroad strike. And there have been railroad negotiations going on with, I think it's a dozen different unions or organized labor groups involved in railroad transportation in this economy for three years. And they have not been able to come to a satisfactory agreement on a new contract. Uh, It's not about pay, as most uh, uh, disagreements that get to this stage are. This one's about working conditions, specifically scheduling and uh, rail employees being able to take days off, which they are not now currently able to do on an adequately uh, accommodative basis. And so it's just a a not very um, happy labor group, these people. But anyway. There is not now going to be a strike because the president of the United States and the Congress of the United States are going to weigh in. And Congress is going to pass a law that says y'all got to go back to work and here are the terms of the deal. And there are various permutations and combinations of what they can do. But what they are probably going to do is put into place the agreement that was agreed to by most, but this is important, definitely not all of the labor unions involved. So there was a a, a presidential emergency board convened. They did some arbitration. They came up with an agreement. Lots of labor groups in railroad agreed to it. Not all of them did. But now the Congress of the United States, it looks like, which in the House is led by a Democrat and in the Senate is led by a Democrat, traditionally more pro-labor groups, and the White House, which is led by a Democrat, as we know, um, they are going to impose on the railroads a... Uh, an agreement that at least part of uh, organized labor disagreed with. And I think that is absolutely fascinating. And I'm just going to completely rip off Benjamin Applebaum here. He, he writes for The New York Times, used to be an economics reporter for them, now is on their editorial board. And Binya quoted, quote, uh, quote tweeted the statement from Nancy Pelosi yesterday that said, we really, in essence, Pelosi said, we really hate to do this, but we got to save the economy. And Binya said, denouncing the railroads is profiteering exploiters of labor and then announcing that you're going to side with the profiteers. Hmm. And then he went on. Maybe Democrats have a different plan for improving the labor share. I don't know, but they certainly have remarkably little tolerance of the labor movement. And for all of you folks, Binya goes on, who think the potential economic disruptions are unbearable, which, parentheses, this is Kai here, they would be, close parentheses. Okay, let's say that's the case. Maybe this time, Binya says, Bigfoot the employers for once. I just think it's really interesting that Democrats in Congress are now going, oh, yeah, corporate America, you go. It's kind of wild. It's um, it's kind of wild. It is pretty wild. And because, I mean, there there is another option, right? You could have yeah. taken a, made a deal that the employers didn't like instead of one that the unions didn't like. Right. That was an option. Um, someone replied under that thread, all that gall about being how being woke alienates the white working class than balking at a chance to actually help yeah, them. It's kind of wild. And this is a very interesting take because, you know, this this debate about, you know, whether the wokeness of the Democratic Party, and yes, I'm putting wokeness in air quotes, is alienate alienating a certain group of voters that is mm-hmm. shifting more and more Republican. And this is sort of the imagery that is often presented of white working class voters, of being in factories, of being, you know, in coal mines, even though that's not really a very large portion of 
the labor force at all. Um, working on railroads and things like that. That, huh. It's kind of wild. Yeah. I'm going to have to turn this over in my head a little bit more. Yep. Anyway, but that's yeah. my item. It's a, it's a little bit of, hmm. <laughs> Uh, well, mine is also about the Democrats, oddly enough. Uh, we're all Democrat today, which is that this week the Democrats are working on uh, setting up their new plans for early voting. So the Democrat, Democratic National Committee is already getting ready for the 2024 presidential elections. And one of the things that the parties do is they decide what order – the primaries go in, in terms of which states get to do their primaries or their, um, I'm losing the other one. Uh, caucuses. 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 Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. The, w- what order they do their primaries and their caucuses and who gets to go first. And there has been a lot of angst within the party the last couple of cycles because the states that go mm. early are very not reflective of the Democratic Party base. They are states that are predominantly white and are shifting more and more Republican, case in point being Iowa. And we really saw this play out in the last presidential election when the early voting Mm -hmm. states Mm -hmm. kind of were all over the place. And then South Carolina, which arguably was much more reflective of the Democratic core base. Not not arguably. Not arguably. Let's not couch that, right? Look at Iowa uh, or New Hampshire and then look at South Carolina, right? I guess I was saying arguably because... Yes, it is definitely more representative of the Democratic base than those early voting states. But because South Carolina skews more black than the overall mm-hmm. population, mm-hmm. not necessarily mm-hmm. a one for one. Fair. But yes, Fair. same larger point, the yeah. same. Yeah. Um, when South Carolina went for Biden, it really shifted the course of the race. Yeah. And, you know, there was a big um, debate at the time over whether if if some of the early voting states had been Nevada or New Mexico or Texas or some of these states that actually are a bit more diverse, that the primaries would have been more clear early on and given a better chance for some other candidates to move forward in the process, right? Yep. So all of that to say, this week, the DNC is beginning the process of deciding what that lineup is going to be for 2024. There is a ton of pressure to shift the lineup, which right now is Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. Those are the first four. And people want to mix it up. There are people who want um, Michigan and Minnesota to get uh, move forward in the process. Nevada wants to be first in the nation over New Hampshire. Um, and it's not just about how it affects the overall voting. It also matters for money. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about how big the primary fields tend to be at the very beginning of these races. And all of those campaigns are spending money in the early voting states. If Iowa wasn't first in the nation or, you know, the first of the caucuses, how much do you think that, you know, how much advertising Mm -hmm. do you think Mm -hmm. dollars would be spent there? How many journalists would be going there and eating at all the mom and pop diners for their, you know, snapshot of America or whatever? And, you know, and I'm sorry, Iowa's not first in the nation. <laughs> I mean, yeah, just because I know everybody's going to say that. Yeah. It's first in the caucuses. It's New Hampshire. I know. 
Okay. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I just think it's very interesting. I'll be fascinated to see how it plays out. There's a huge money consequence for that in terms of campaign spending in addition to how the eventual nominees uh, land, assuming anybody actually mm-hmm. chooses to run against <laughs> Biden. Yes. All right. Yes. All right. That's it for the news fix. Let's go to the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right. I was talking last week uh, about eggnog this time of year, and I should say that uh, <laughs> I had more than a couple eggnog and bourbons uh, over the Thanksgiving holidays. It's just a nice little Good treat. You. you know, whatever. Um, anyway, Carol in Hawaii sent us this. When I heard Kai talking about eggnog, I just had to share this recipe. It's really simple. It's just four ingredients, bourbon, sugar, egg yolks, and whipping cream. My husband found this recipe on Garden and Gun magazine about five years ago. So we made it, and it is absolutely delicious. It really is the world's greatest eggnog. Also, we thought because it's the Christmas season, we could make it red. So we added red food coloring, but unfortunately, it turned pink and looked more like Pepto-Bismol. So don't do that. Anyway, enjoy and bon appetit. All right. I'll tell you, I'm looking now, uh, because the producers put it in the rundown, I'm looking at gardenandgun.com of the world's greatest eggnog recipe. So uh, we will have it on our show page. Give it a try. Maybe I will and I will report back. God, but listen to this. Four cups bourbon, two and a quarter cups sugar, (laughs) 12 large egg yolks, eight cups whipping cream. Although it says it serves 20 to 30 people. But oh my lordy be. So that just means you have to have a party. Oh my gosh! Right. You have to like put the put the recipe into one of those calculators that lets you sort of divide oh, it down you. to single service, yeah. and Oof. then you can do it on happy hour, and oh, we can you out. can tell us how it is. I will come not. on. I will oh. not. Moving on. Before we go, we are going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, "What is something you thought you knew you later found out you were wrong about?" Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Susanna from Cathedral City, California. What is something I thought I knew, but two and a half years later found out I was wrong about? How I would recover from a layoff. Two and a half years ago, I sent in a memo after being told that I was being laid off from my company. I exposed my soul and it did seem hopeless at the time. However, It's not hopeless. It wasn't hopeless. Due to my faith, my persistence, and just who I am as a person, I did bounce back. And not just into what I was doing, which I had loved, but something immensely better. I now am working for an amazing nonprofit, and I recently got a promotion. And I would not have been here had I not been laid off two and a half years ago from what I thought was the company I'd be at for the rest of my life. I hope this helps your listeners to know that there is light and you can find the perfect fit for you. That's really uplifting. Thank you, Kat. Susanna. I really what's, what's appreciate the, what's that. What's the saying? When one door closes, another door, another door opens, right? That's the I was going to say my dad's version of that was sometimes God closes a window to open a door. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That. 
Well, and especially for those who um, have been recently laid off in the tech industry or otherwise, I, I imagine Susanna's points could be quite encouraging at this moment. And for everybody else, or those of you, don't forget to send us your answers to the Make Me Smart question. You can leave us a voicemail at 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. All right, super quick before we go, uh, just because you surely have been assaulted many times by the Giving <laughs> Tuesday emails, and please, here's ours, but it's different because number one, it's us. But number two, the Investors Challenge Fund, the Marketplace Investors Challenge Fund is matching gifts to triple your impact. Your 50 becomes 150. You can do the math from take it from there. So if you give generously, you can be proud that your gift will have three times the impact on the nonprofit newsroom that you trust and rely on. That is, of course, us. Marketplace.org slash give smarts. Follow the link in the show notes as well. And your gift will be part of Giving Tuesday. Boom. There you go. Giving Tuesday in 15 seconds or less. Yes. How about that? And I've got like three emails from the school to which I'm sending many tens of thousands of dollars to educate my child. <laughs> They're like, no, please give us more money. <sighs> anyway, Make Me Smart is produced by Marissa Cabrera and Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Today's program is engineered by Juan Carlos Dorado on the other side of the glass. Gary O'Keefe is going to mix it down later. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez compose our theme music. Our senior producer, Bridget Bodner, is working on Million Bazillion, a.k.a. Make Me Smart for Kids. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. I keep getting all these phone calls from all the public radio stations that I'm a member oh, of yeah. asking totally. me to boost my donations. Totally. And it always feels, feels awkward. Yep, 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 yep.